Welcome to A Fork in Time, the alternate history podcast. It's the night of June 17th, 1972. Frank Wills is having a really long night. He's at the Watergate Complex, in, uh, a luxury apartment, as well as a business complex in the Washington, D.C. area. And his job as the night security guard is to make the rounds. Only, he's a little sleepy. And so instead of making his appointed rounds throughout the office part of the complex, he ends up falling asleep on that fateful night. And... As a result of that, we get to explore a potentially different path in history. What would have happened if the Watergate break-in had never been discovered? Hi, I'm Don Shelley. Welcome to A Fork in Time, the Alternate History Podcast. Happy to have you back. Also joined today again by my very special co-host, that's Alexis Shelley. Good to have you again, Alexis, joining us. Thanks for having me. And so while we're not talking about something that is British history today, which as we know from past podcasts... (laughs) is an area of expertise and love for Alexis. She also enjoys American history, and uh, so she's joining me today on this little path, not so far back in our past. Uh, So the the ripple in the pond is coming from a rock that we don't have to go too far back in time to drop. So we're going to be focusing on today on what would have happened again if the Watergate break-in had not been discovered. So when you're looking at how history would have been different without Watergate, there's a couple of different ways you could look at that. You could say, what if there had never been the break-in? That is not the approach that we're taking. We're going to assume that the break-in actually happened, but what we're going to assume is that it remained a secret. And so that will be our fork in time. That's actually the events that were kicked off by not Frank Wills falling asleep that night, but Frank Wills actually doing his job that night as the security guard, Uh, noticing that something was afoot inside of the Watergate complex and eventually leading to the arrest of the so-called Watergate burglars. And so we're going to assume as our dividing point in history that um, there was no discovery of the break-in that night and they actually got away with the Watergate break-in, not that the Watergate break-in didn't happen. Uh, Now that we've established and spent a lot of time doing that, how we're going to break off the fork in time here, June 17th of 1972 becomes that fork. As we always like to do here on A Fork in Time, it's helpful to begin by following the actual real path of history. So uh, Alexis happens to be a journalism and mass communications major, so I'm going to put that education to work here. (laughs) Uh, From the standpoint of somebody who studied journalism, uh, what's significant about Watergate and I guess what happens as a result of Watergate when it comes to the press and how things worked as far as journalists were concerned? Well, I had to take a class for my journalism degree uh, back in college, and one of the things we did in that class was actually watching the movie All the President's Men, which centered on these two pretty unknown guys at the time, uh, Woodward and Bernstein, working for uh, the newspaper, and they discovered and actually followed the trail that ultimately led to all the discoveries about Watergate and ultimately led to Nixon's resignation as president uh, in the impeachment process. So 
that is one thing that was definitely taught to me and kind of drilled into my head in that journalism degree was with the impact that Watergate had on journalism as a profession as a whole. Yeah, and here in in, uh, in recent days, although it was along a different uh, along a different subject, uh, the whole idea of who Catherine Graham was as a result of the recent movie The Paper, uh, which you know, ultimately th- that was initially about the Ellsberg. Uh, the Pentagon Papers, but but ultimately her role in terms of Washington Post breaking the the Watergate story and this, the other things. This that are story going on. definitely kind of put Catherine Graham on the map, along with Woodward and Bernstein. So no, no, no doubt about that. But that's sort of almost the pop culture side, and yes, it's important from the journalistic aspect as well. But uh, it's important to realize that what Watergate did was derail a presidency. We mentioned already that it ultimately led to Nixon resigning because of the impending possibility of actually being impeached. And so one of the things to realize is a little bit about the history of Richard Nixon. Uh, Nixon, of course, first came to fame as Eisenhower's vice president, lost the 1960 election to John F. Kennedy. In 1968, comes back and wins the presidency. And so as we arrive uh, to June 17th of 1972, our date that we're taking the fork in time, uh, we actually find that this is just months before Nixon's re-election, overwhelming re-election, uh, to a second term. And so uh, it's, it's, sometimes it's easy to forget that uh, Nixon did, in fact, win uh, in a, almost a landslide his election for a second term. And while Watergate had happened, uh, in the sense that it did happen before that, it was not a major story, story that derailed his re-election although a lot of it does seem to be around the effort to get him reelected. Uh, certainly, soon after the story breaks and things start happening uh, in the subsequent years from that, the second term of Richard Nixon takes a turn away from what it could have been or might have been. We'll spend some time talking about that as it uh, becomes an embattled presidency uh, relating to special prosecutors and potential impeachment uh, situations and House hearings and all of the things that go with that. Uh, as a result of the Watergate scandal. So it's a fair thing to say, and I think an easy thing to say for most people to to grasp, that Richard Nixon's second term became about Watergate, not about the things that it probably would have been about had he remained president. Definitely a fair assumption. Yeah. And so uh, among the things that Nixon is known for, uh, even in in, in, uh, the situation where Watergate was discovered, is in 1973, uh, the Paris Peace Accords were agreed, and Nixon had uh, one election and had spent a great deal of his uh, first term on the concept of peace with honor, how the, the United States would exit uh, the Vietnam War, which he inherited from the previous administration. And so one of the things that we'll talk about as we explore the alternate history path uh, will be some of the foreign policy things that might have been the same or might have remained different in the context of a Richard Nixon presidency uh, without Watergate. Of course, in the real timeline of history, uh, that second term was an eventful term uh, for Nixon uh, with the resignation of a vice president, Spiro Agnew, the replacement uh, for Agnew in one Gerald Ford, and of course, after Nixon's resignation, the decision by now President Ford, who had never stood for election for the U.S. presidency, the first and only man to assume the role without having gone through the elective process, uh, chooses to pardon Richard Nixon, which creates a situation as well that uh, created some divisiveness and concern in the American politic uh, there in the years leading up to the 1976 election. And it can certainly be argued that one of the legacies of a Watergate-laden Nixon administration 
is the election of 1976. And the 1976 election, of course, is of an outsider, uh, one James Earl Carter, we know him as Jimmy, who was the governor of, of Georgia, and of course uh, was able to um, rise to prominence in most instances and in many ways because he was viewed as an outsider and viewed um, as an honest man, right. uh, something that, uh, that Washington needed or certainly the American public felt that was needed after the Watergate scandal, after Nixon's resignation, and, and then after uh, the pardon by Gerald Ford. So uh, as a result of the Nixon uh, administration exiting the way that it did, we have a brief Ford administration. Uh, we have a contested election in 1976 where there's a lack of clarity about who is now going to lead the Republican Party absent its president and a, and a clear sort of line of succession in the normal flow of American electoral politics when it comes to parties. And for example, while Ford was the vice president and then president, he was running for re-election, but he was not really running for re-election. He was running for election Action. for the first time. Um, and the things that flow from that, of course, 1976 sees the rise of the right wing of the Republican Party under one who, Alexis? That'd be Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, uh, who for a lot of people, of course, knew him as the governor of California, but for a lot of Americans, he had been a Hollywood actor, best known for doing some films with a chimp. <laughs> so uh, that sort of brings us to 1976, and of course, the, uh, the Democratic nominee being Carter and the subsequent election of Carter. And then uh, the late 70s, uh, stagflation, economic tensions, and the other things that flow from that. So... Alexis, any comments more about just the way the Nixon, the Nixon presidency actually played out before we start talking about maybe what the alternate would have been? Yeah, it is, it is important to remember, of course, as we've mentioned, that Ford kind of just got into the role because he was vice president and had to take over and then, of course, didn't win that the re-election or his election in terms of that just because he had never had to do that before. And Carter really did run on almost an anti-Watergate ticket. He was, you know, I'm going to be the exact opposite of what you're kind of disenfranchised with and disenchanted with. And that's what kind of allowed him to sweep into the White House. Yeah, I think that's that's a, an excellent point. And even though it, uh, we, we mentioned it before, a point that's important to understand is that the election of 1976 became not just a referendum on parties and positions, it became a referendum in some ways on government in general, general. Uh, as a result of the events of Watergate. And actually that's also post-Vietnam. Uh, post there was a lot going on that was, was affecting how people were thinking about uh, government, uh, which still reverberates down to today. Right in the sense of a lot of people uh, having a distrust of government. If you look at polls of uh, people's opinion of government, which varies over time, before Watergate and after Watergate, there's much more of a jaded view by the American uh, electorate of politics uh, post-Watergate than there was before. And in fact, it's interesting that we use the term Watergate and we all know what that means. It's become a, a word to represent a scandal. No. And uh, it even has, you know, it's we talk about other things being gates, Iran Contra Gate, and you know the various other things that are there, uh, all because of Watergate, which to me has always been interesting as a as someone who studied political science, that we we refer to a scandal based upon uh, property development <laughs> in the in the Washington D.C. area. So I think everyone pretty much because it's recent history understands the flow of real events. Uh, following uh, the Nixon resignation, which of course is the result of Watergate. But again, our fork in time 
is the night of the Watergate break-in and it doesn't go discovered. So among the things that happens because the break-in is discovered is that in the process of the investigations uh, by the press and ultimately the investigations by, uh, by the House and, and, and Congress is that we learned, for example, that the White House had in the Oval Office a taping system that had been installed. A very complex taping system. Yeah. And as a result of that, uh, we actually discover that conversations which were held between the president and his top advisors, his chief of staff, members of the cabinet, others as well, were actually recorded. Uh, only a, a very small number of people knew that this, uh, that this taping system even existed, uh, but it becomes a very interesting thing in the sense of once uh, the existence of the tapes are known, uh, the subpoenas are issued for those tapes to be um, handed over. Handed over. Uh, there's the decision which is made by Richard Nixon as president, uh, which uh, I guess will continue to be debated over time. What was his right response? There were people that were advocating he should simply do what? Burn them. Burn them, destroy them. They were his tapes. Uh, he had the right to do with them whatever he wanted to do. And uh, that the alternate position there was that they constituted some form of evidence. So in doing so would have been some form of obstruction of justice or tampering with evidence. But it would have been an interesting uh, situation to see what would have happened in terms of the potential for prosecution if he had actually just chosen to destroy the tapes. He chose not to destroy the tapes, chose to fight against their release. Ultimately, there's a Supreme Court decision uh, that, that mandates that he does release the tapes. And as a result of that, we have an insight into the Nixon presidency that we wouldn't have had. So one of the outcomes of a not having a Watergate is our impression of who Richard Nixon is president probably be different. Would you agree with that, Alexis? Definitely, definitely. These tapes really showed his character and really showed what he thought about different people groups, different policies that were happening. So you kind of get a behind-the-curtain view of him, and he doesn't necessarily come off in the best light in some instances, for sure. Yeah, I, I've read a number of things and seen later interviews that, for example, his, his background, his religious background growing up was that of a, a Quaker, very conservative background. And, uh, for example, one of the things that is you discover on the tapes is the amount of, uh, of foul language some anti-Semitic as well. Yeah, that, um, you know, that he, I, even later Nixon would say that he was embarrassed sometimes by the language that was used. Not what he said, but the language that he used mm. to say it, uh, which, which is an interesting context there. But I, I do think one of the things that it's easy to overlook in understanding the impact of Watergate is Watergate and the investigation into it eventually led to the discovery that there were tapes and a reason for those tapes to be requested. Uh, you might argue from history that uh, eventually folks would have learned or would have leaked out the fact that there was a taping system in the White House, but there would have been no criminal investigation or criminal need to request those tapes. And so even though the tapes existed, there would have been no release of the tapes. They would have certainly fallen within executive privilege to retain the tapes. So I guess one of the one of the things we could point out is a difference in a world where there's no uh, uh, realization that Watergate happened is that we may or may not have had the Nixon tapes and the insights into Nixon's character, his persona, the decision-making process, what he thought about things, which has been a valuable thing for historians for the elements of his presidency that have nothing to do with the it's actual... actually Watergate. Exactly. <laughs> understanding what his thinking was on Vietnam, understanding what his thinking was on China, some of the other things that are there, this uh, very unprecedented 
insight into the, the thinking uh, of a sitting U.S. president. So that would be one thing that would be different, uh, is that we wouldn't maybe understand Nixon, the man, Nixon the president, in quite the same way. Historians would have to look at different means and interviews after the fact, and certainly there there were a number of tell-all books and, and sort of uh, other things that were done, but they probably would have been in a, done in a different way uh, by those that were leaving the administration. So that's one of the changes that's there. What What's another change, Alexis? Another change is definitely looking into, we mentioned briefly, uh, Vietnam. Um, obviously, that would have gone a little bit differently. We mentioned the Paris Peace Accords. There's a chance that we might have ended up back in Vietnam, and that possibly North and South Vietnam would not be how they are today uh, if the, those tapes had not been able to be released and uh, Nixon would not have ultimately uh, resigned from office. Yeah, well, well, it's easy to remember there is that while Vietnam is united today, of course, the U.S. had supported the, the South uh, Vietnamese in, in, in the conflict. Uh, after the Paris Peace Accords, there is later the, the resumption of hostilities and eventually the fall of Saigon uh, in 1975. And all of this happens in a context where uh, there are long been opposition to the war and questions about why the U.S. was involved in Southeast Asia in, in general and in Vietnam, in, in Vietnam in particular, but certainly in an atmosphere of what was going on with domestic politics, there, there was a focus away from um, the international relation aspect of things because so much was going on domestically. Right. And as a result of that, there's, uh, there's a, you know, less attention is focused on should the U.S. return back and defend the position in Vietnam, uh, again, with uh, Nixon's concept of peace with honor, however you want to interpret that or however you want to think that through, would that have been going, going back in and going back in with some force and perhaps with more of the support of uh, the U.S. electorate uh, just because there had been the effort to have peace and, and the result of that, but then things falling apart, would there have been a, a desire to go back in and do something different? So... It's hard to speculate or hard to know exactly what would have been different about Vietnam with a uh, with a Nixon presidency, a Nixon second term that survives. Uh, but certainly it would have been a situation where Nixon, even critics will recognize, had a, a grasp and understanding of foreign policy See? that was uh, that was superior to a lot of presidents that have occupied uh, the Oval Office. Uh, may have had a different response and with a different political backing, a popular a popular political backing, uh, may have been able to do something different about that. What else might have been different, Lux? So it's important to note that uh, Nixon was actually a somewhat liberal Republican in terms of the party. He was actually trying to do a lot of things bipartisanly, trying to find a middle ground compromise. So definitely, I think, going forward, the two political parties, the Republicans and the Democrats, might look dramatically different if Nixon had been allowed to finish out that second term. Obviously, we wouldn't have had the Ford presidency, maybe not a Reagan presidency. And going forward, how would those two parties look today or even in the immediate aftermath in the 70s and 80s uh, in terms of how they deal with certain party politics and things that are polarizing for those two parties. Correct. I, it's, it's interesting because one of the other things along those lines that happened as a result of Watergate and then subsequently uh, Nixon's resignation is not only do we have the Carter presidency, but we had a, have a lot of incumbent members of the House and Senate who also turned over as there's, there was a sort of this new wave of, of, um, of uh, anti-Washington sentiment 
Carter rides that into the presidency to a great degree, but there were others in other positions in the House and Senate that came in as a result of being also candidates that were campaigning as outsiders. Right. It wasn't just at the top. It was all throughout government. Yeah, that was looking to reform. And uh, it is true that, you know, it's interesting, We you know, those terms, conservative and liberal, have various meanings (laughs) even in today's American politics, depending on where we are. And the purpose of this podcast is not to be a political podcast, so we won't chase down those paths. But generally speaking... um, what we think of today is that Republicans as a whole tend to be the party of conservatism and that the Democratic Party, the modern Democratic Party, meaning of the 21st century, tends to be more of a party that is more, certainly more liberal and a party of liberalism. And it's important to note, again, I have a background in political science and think about these things this way. Compared to global politics, when we talk about conservatism and liberalism, uh, those terms inside the American context are more, much more towards the middle than they are globally. But still, having said that, the, uh, the fact is that as a result of Watergate, there was a movement inside of the Republican Party, which led ultimately to the rise of a former governor of California. We've already mentioned him, a guy by the name of... Ronald Reagan. Yeah, it was actually just turning through my head. You know, I was listening to something recently and somebody referred to the Republican Party as the party of Reagan. And if, you know, things had conspired differently, we never would have had a Ronald Reagan to lead the Republican Party. Or or we might not have had in the same timing or the same context. Uh, Certainly, in fact, the election of 76, I was was eight years old uh, for the election of 76, so I'm just old enough to actually sort of remember it. I will will put it in that I was a twinkle in somebody's eye somewhere, maybe. Yeah, (laughs) obviously obviously Alexis not alive during that period of time, but what I do remember, even as an eight-year-old, and I guess someone who eventually makes perfect sense that he studied political science (laughs) because I was paying attention to presidential elections even at the age of eight, I remember specifically, I do specifically remember myself personally uh, seeing the Republican convention that year and not fully understanding what I was seeing by any stretch of the imagination. But I remember that there was sort of the surprise of the strength of Reagan at that convention as a challenge to the sitting president, Ford. But as we've already mentioned, a president who had never been elected to the office of president, who had assumed the office. In fact, he hadn't even been elected as vice president because he moved to the position of vice president after the resignation of Agnew. And uh, I remember them talking about, you know, brokering a deal there at the convention for what what might have been like a Ford-Reagan ticket, which eventually didn't happen. Uh, But certainly that sowed the seeds for the 1980 election and the role that Ronald Reagan would play there. And I think you make an excellent point, Alexis, uh, for those who refer to the Republican Party or think about it in a a way looking back... um, and th- calling it the party of Reagan, there may have ultimately been a Reagan presidency, but not in the way that we saw the Reagan presidency as a result of Watergate. Or so, possibly not in that same timeline. Exact, it might have been later in the 80s. And, and it's important to remember that at one point uh, back in the day, <laughs> uh, Reagan had actually been a Democrat. Right. Uh, back when he back when he was involved with, uh, was still an actor, and was working with issues related to the... Uh, uh, to the to union needs there in Hollywood and things like that. It was it was only later, as he ran for the governorship in California, that Reagan became a Republican, and of course, uh, definitely is a representative figure of essentially modern Republican conservatism. Again, I said this was not going to be a politics podcast, so we'll move off of that. Except to say that Watergate altered our politics uh, in, in interesting ways. Um, it's also interesting to note one of the things I was surprised by, Alexis. You you were mentioning this just before we began uh, airing as well. 
uh, one of the big issues that we face today in the United States is a, a, an issue that's of interest to a lot of folks is the issue of health care. Mm-hmm. And uh, what was going on with even with Nixon and health care that might have been different without a Watergate? So Nixon was actually looking for a bipartisan approach to health care, uh, trying to unite the two parties and trying to figure out a compromise. So it's interesting. Health care has always been complicated. It's always been an issue that um, is a behemoth to try and figure out. So it's interesting that Nixon was trying to work together and find that compromise and find that agreement, um, which ultimately didn't happen. And we're still seeing the effects of that today and how how do we pay for health care? How do we get make sure everybody has the health care they need? So it's a big issue. We might have been close to it to an answer back in 1974. Um, obviously, history took a different turn. Uh, and what would have been the case today? Yeah, the uh, uh, for example, he, he's known to have been working there with Ted Kennedy, mm-hmm. senator from Massachusetts, uh, to work on a bipartisan approach to health care that would have maybe not provided some form of universal care, but would have been a more form of universal care than, than existed at the time. Uh, of course, uh, Medicaid and Medicare in the formats that we know them were relatively new in new. the 70s. Uh, some of that rising out of the Great Society legislation during the Johnson administration in the 1960s. And so, again, this is one of those areas where uh, you know it's often said that because of his strong anti-communist uh, stances earlier in his political career that Nixon was the only president or uniquely equipped as president to go and visit China yeah. because nobody could question his anti-communist uh, credentials. Yeah, his stance on that. His stance on that was well clear and well known and as a result Nixon was uniquely equipped to be able to go to China and not have that being viewed as a, as a form of compromise uh, with many people on, on both sides recognizing, knowing his position, that he was going there in what many thought of as being a position of strength. And so Nixon's also sort of held the same ability when it dealt with other issues, in this case social issues, which may have been uh, uh, more quote-unquote liberal, or we think of them as being more liberal today, where he might have been able to broker compromises and broker situations that might not have existed otherwise. And apparently he also had a tremendous desire to uh, spend more uh, on, on infrastructure and other social programs, carrying that through the types of things that eventually uh, became less prominent in, uh, in in subsequent Republican administrations and just the, the government in general uh, being able to work through the things that were there. So what else might have been different? So not only with relationships with China been a little bit different, it's uh, possible that relationships with the Soviet Union might have been a little bit uh, different, might not have been quite as much of a Cold War. Yeah, Still the, would have had a Cold War, but not, not quite as cold. Yeah, the uh, one of the things that Nixon is known for was the concept of detente uh, after the, the Cold War, the 50s and the 60s, the thawing of relations between uh, the United States and the Soviet Union to some degree, uh, the signing of some ballistic missile treaties and some of the early things that were done there and that were in the process. Again, Nixon's position as being someone who was uh, known as a staunch anti-communist with the credentials to back it up, probably more so than almost anyone in American right. politics, uh, would have put his position with uh, with the Soviet Union in a slightly different place. And again, without the lack of focus on international relations related to, uh, uh, because of all the domestic instances rising out of Watergate, it might have been a different story. Also important to note that you know the situation in the Middle East, for example, uh, is, is the tensions are rising there during this period of time 
in uh, in seventy three. There's the the conflict, uh, the Arab Israeli conflict in seventy three, uh, the settlement of things that go from there, and so uh, the Soviets were involved indirectly in that, as was the United States, and how that played out could have been very different with a Nixon presidency. Uh, and his foreign policy experience, as well as just having more of a firm footing to deal with foreign policy matters because of domestic matters being more well in hand. Right, not being not being so focused on the inward, being able to focus a little bit more on our relationships with other countries, things definitely would have played out a little bit differently. Yeah, and, and you know, and of course then you have the differences of what happens in the late 70s as we move into the situations. It happened in the early 70s as well, moving into the late 70s of the situation with uh, the oil embargoes and the rise of OPEC, uh, the various things that are going on in the Arab world, which eventually lead to the situation in uh, Iran, uh, the revolution there, the hostage crisis. Um, the Carter presidency, uh, not to cast aspersions on President Carter, but the Carter presidency faced a lot of foreign policy challenges, uh, some of which came as the result of things not being dealt with earlier in the decade, or dealt with in a different way, perhaps, that would have set things up differently, or had there been a different president in the office, in the office with a different uh, backing uh, situation, there might have worked out differently as well. That probably covers most of the big thematic differences in a uh, non-Watergate America. Uh, I'm actually attracted very much to an article discovered in the research here that was written in uh, 1992 by uh, Martha Sherrill. Uh, I think you were interested in this as well, Alexis, and the idea of, we talked about some of the big picture stuff, but maybe there's a lot of things that we think of as being iconic today that might not have existed uh, that uh, we would also notice as well, perhaps by their absence. One of the first things that jumped out at me is uh, because of the generation that I grew up in, there was a very popular television show in the 1980s called Dynasty, and the patriarch of that family was paid, played by one John Forsyth. Uh, giving a little bit more of the uh, my generation's take here on the podcast. They will remember Mr. Forsyth as the voice of Charlie on Charlie's Angels, and he slid into the role of playing the patriarch of this powerful oil magnet family based in Colorado. Uh, maybe if Ronald Reagan isn't the uh, maybe if Ronald Reagan isn't the president or a presidential candidate or involved back in politics, maybe they go looking for another older Hollywood actor leading man type that would have been perfect for TV and fitting the budgets of TV. Maybe one who? That'd be Ronald Reagan? Maybe one Maybe, Ro- maybe one Ronald Reagan is uh, plays Blake Carrington of Dynasty. Just, uh, you know, thinking that through. Um, he would have had to dye his hair. Yeah, but, you know. exactly. Probably would have had to dye his hair, as Martha Sherrill points out. Uh, another interesting thing there is the concept of uh, what would have happened... Uh, if there had not been a, uh, let's say, an Iran hostage crisis, because that was handled somehow differently by an administration other than the Carter administration, what would have been different if there had been not the Iran hostage crisis that we think of and know today? Well, definitely uh, if the president who was president during the Iran hostage crisis, the article that's this speculates that possibly a Rockefeller would have become president. And of course, the Rockefellers are synonymous with cash. They probably would have just bailed out those hostages a different way. Would have had, wouldn't have had to do the negotiations that had to take place. And of course, without that negotiations and without those things in place, there wouldn't be this little thing that happened on ABC that was hosted by Ted Koppel. Yeah, a lot of people <laughs> uh, easily forget that the show that we know of as Nightline 
resulted from a nightly broadcast that uh, ABC did as a network each night, which was an update on the the hostage crisis. And once the hostage crisis was resolved, that turned into the show that we know as Nightline, which of course was very influential uh, into the 80s and I guess even into the 90s, but particularly in the 80s in terms of a different type of journalism and a different type of way of presenting things. So again, if there's no Watergate, maybe there's a different president, maybe there's a slightly different resolution uh, to the Iran-Contra situation. And no need for Nightline. I'm sorry I said Iran-Contra. I mean the Iran hostage situation. situation. By the way, there might not have been an Iran-Contra situation. (laughs) There was a Freudian slip. Yeah, moving forward into the 80s. And so as a result of that, uh, we don't get get Nightline, and we don't get also, for those of you that recognize this reference from my generation, we don't get Tom Hanks' parody (laughs) of uh, Ted Koppel as the host of Nightline. So as we've already discussed, it's also important to remember that certain careers came into existence uh, in a way that might not have happened the exact same way if it weren't for Watergate. There's these two guys, you mentioned them much earlier, they're actually portrayed by Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman in movie form, but in reality... uh, They're Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward. Yep, and uh, did Watergate do anything for those guys? Kind of launched their careers, not to put it... You know, too mildly, but kind of launched them into superstardom in terms of the journalistic world. So without that catalyst, so to speak, they they probably would have still continued to be journalists, still working for their uh, for the paper, but wouldn't have had that hook, wouldn't have had that star thing that stood out on their resume. Probably would have never become household names. Probably would have just gone into oblivion. Yeah. So uh, never would have had a movie named after, made after made for them either. That's correct. And uh, as as, as uh, was speculated in this one article, as a result of that, if there's no all the president's men because there's no Woodward and Bernstein and no book, then uh, who knows where the career of Jason Robards would be today? <laughs> who of course played Ben Bradley in the movie, and uh, I'm pretty sure that Dustin Hoffman and uh, Robert Redford would have still had careers. Yeah, they would have found success, I'm sure. But definitely, um, when I think Dustin Hoffman, when I think... um, I just lost the other name. Dustin... Robert Redford. Thank you. Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford. Those are the two characters that immediately pop into my mind. Maybe it's that journalism degree, but I think they were played superbly. Yeah. So so we might have seen some changes in, quote-unquote, Hollywood or in journalism as a result of what happens there. Uh, interesting to note that as a result of uh, some of the um, some of the events around the Watergate scandal per se, uh, there might have been some others which are known in history but might have taken a different path. Uh, one of the ones that comes to mind is Robert Bork. Uh, Bork, of course, known for being one of the uh, the deputy attorney generals during the thing, the famous Saturday Night Massacre, where they fire or attempt to fire uh, Archibald Cox as the special prosecutor. Later, uh, he's uh, was still had enough uh, credence to be nominated for the Supreme Court uh, during the 1980s. But among other things, his role during Watergate is one of the reasons that he's uh, that he's not um, uh, put into position of being a justice in the Supreme Court. So the the makeup of the Supreme Court might have been different had it uh, had it not been. Uh, for the Watergate scandal. It's also interesting to note there that one of the things, even even the idea of a special prosecutor is a unique outflow of the of the Watergate situation. Right, there was never really a need for one before. Yeah, and so subsequent to that, we've had other prosecutors, uh, including 
current political situations, but you know, before Ken Starr and others who have held the role of special prosecutor, something that really came into existence and being in a prominent way as a result of the as a result of the Watergate scandal. So while there's the big flow of history that would be different if uh, history had taken a different path, we've already covered those things. There's small things that all uh, can also flow out of those things. Again, as we use the analogy so often of a rock being dropped in the pond, the ripples sometimes are big and sometimes the ripples are small. And perhaps finally, uh, for students of American history, uh, without the, the awareness, the public awareness of the Watergate break-in and the subsequent scandal, uh, the most famous thing that we may remember about June 17th as a date in American history would not be the date of the Watergate break-in, but would be the date of what, Alexis? The Battle of Bunker Hill. The Battle of Bunker Hill. So uh, we would uh, we'd be more focused perhaps on that when this day in history pops up on your computer for June 17th uh, than the recognition that it was the date for Watergate. So, Alexis, good to have you with me today. Thanks for being part of our journey here down as we look down an alternate path of a universe where we don't call every scandal the something gate uh, as a result of uh, Watergate never coming to light. Uh, if you've enjoyed today's podcast, uh, we ask you to uh, let us know that. Uh, there's a number of different places you can comment about that. You can leave a review on our on iTunes or whatever uh, Stitcher or whatever means you actually get the podcast. Uh, certainly, we would invite you to check us out on our Patreon page, uh, which is... Follow us on Facebook. Follow us on Facebook. Uh, here we'll be getting a Twitter and other types of social media set up as well. Uh, that'll help you know when the new episodes are out. Generally, episodes fall once a week, normally on Fridays, trying to hold to that schedule, but that'll let you know for sure what's going on there. Uh, visit us on Patreon. Uh, while we're not in the business of doing this to make money, that's not why we're doing a podcast. If you'd like to support us and find value to this, you have the opportunity to be part of the podcast that way. We do have some special extras for our Patreon supporters that are there, and that includes the ability to suggest and frame show topics. And also, uh, for uh, certain supporters, the opportunity maybe to join us as a guest co-host. So uh, if you're interested in uh, more about what's going on with the podcast, you can find us there on Patreon. Certainly, if you are enjoying the podcast, subscribe so that it shows up in your podcast feed or reader or software or app of, of precedence, however you choose to consume the podcast. Uh, that way, you'll know exactly what's going on. And again, you'll find links to all of those various things attached in the podcast notes or in the show notes as well. And we certainly welcome your comments. If you have different thoughts, for example, about what would happen in one of these alternate history paths, let us know. Um, uh, we try not to make this a show about opinion, but it is about opinion because it's not about fact once you take that diversion in time. And so we welcome other thoughts about other things that we may have missed, hadn't thought about, or maybe, in your opinion, we thought about them incorrectly. And we welcome your feedback and, uh, and look forward to reading it as well and incorporating that. So for Alexis and for myself, we're going to sign off now. And again, once again, thank you for joining us here on A Fork in Time and suggest uh, sort of in the immortal words that are slightly altered of that great baseball philosopher, Yogi Berra. <laughs> uh, he once said, if you find a fork in the road, take it. Get. Uh, our idea, if you find a fork in time, is take it. Have a great day.
Thanks for listening to A Fork in Time, the alternate history podcast. Join us next time.